0: So let's give Saviwe a hand for that. (laughs) You know, I've heard about passive aggressive, but I have no idea what that was. (laughs) Amen. Shall we just, uh, let's just pray together. Father, we just thank you for this awesome opportunity, Lord God, just to hear from you, Lord Jesus. And God, I just pray that every one of us would just open our hearts wide to you. God, whatever I say, I thank you that you are gonna impart your wisdom, your truth, your grace, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as the viewer said uh, tonight, I've entitled the sermon From Ashes to Beauty The Process of Purpose. Foster um, Siv did such a great job last week just um, telling us who the reason is. Who can remember who the reason is? There we go, Jesus. It's not a trick question. <laughs> That that is why we are here, and that that really is our purpose, is to know Him first and foremost. Um, but at the end of it, when we were praying, we realized there were a lot of questions about purpose. <laughs> so I'm going to take a slightly different angle to, tonight as I talk about process, and we're going to start by, by reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 to 4. It's a well-known portion of Scripture, but, but don't disengage. Um, it's going to be on, up on the screen, and I'm going to read it to you. It says this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And can you see that in that scripture, there's already a process that's being described for us. There's a a form that's being described to us. And that form is that we come to the Lord and we acknowledge Him as God. We, We say to Him, You are Lord. And He anoints us with His presence. He fills us with His presence. And as He fills us with His presence, He begins to transform our inner being. He sets us free. His truth comes and it liberates us. And it gives us an idea of who we can be in Him. And then He goes deeper and He begins to heal our hearts. And He delivers us from false thinking. He delivers us from shame. He delivers us from the lies we have believed about ourselves, about Him, and about the world. And as we are healed, He sends us out to partner with Him to build His kingdom. Did you see the bit? The ones who are anointed, the ones who preach the good news, the ones who are healed, they are the ones who restore the devastation. That's you and that's me. Whenever I think about that, I get really excited and then I'm also like, oh, seriously, God, didn't you have a better plan? But but no, he didn't. We are his first plan to see this city and this nation saved. Nobody is going to come from anywhere else to do it. It's our job. But can you see that process, that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we need to, as Jess was talking about in the communion so beautifully, we need to be given over totally to Him. And then we need to stand in that place of letting ourselves be liberated. Sometimes when we've lived in a prison for a long time, that just becomes home. Sometimes when we've lived in a prison for a long time, we've got comfortable. And suddenly when that door opens, we're faced with a choice. Are we going to run out and risk a whole new way of living? Or are we going to leave the door open with the hope of escape, but we're going to stay right where we are? And that's a choice. I believe that freedom at its essence is about actually having a choice. Before Jesus, you were going to sin. There was no other option. Even if you tried to do really good, you were just never quite going to get there because there was absolutely no other option. But then Jesus comes, and He dies on that cross, and He sets you free. What does that mean? Suddenly, you can make a choice. There's nothing magic about freedom. It's a choice we make, where we go, yes, you are Lord, you are Savior, and I can see right from wrong for the first time in my whole life. But now, guess what? Am I going to choose right Am I going to take the risk? Am I actually going to leave the prison that has become comfortable for me? And so as I said, this passage is actually describing the life you and I are and should be living. This is the process that you and I are currently in. So when we read those promises—it sounds like from ashes to beauty, from mourning to joy, from weakness to strength—and there's a very real sense where that does happen because those promises are yours. They are mine. They exist. We can have them. But will we receive them? That's the question. And so, in a very real day-to-day sense, everybody in this room is bo- is in a process of ashes to beauty of mourning to joy, of weakness to strength. And process is weird because it's already happening, but we want to just be at the end. (laughs) And we don't know how to be ambiguous and hold a space where there are still ashes and still beauty in our life. But we have to learn how to do that. Everybody in this room is on that journey. Some of them, like Pastor Roger and Nicola, are just further down the road. Just because they've had a lot more practice. (laughs) These are beautiful, beautiful people, I want to tell you right now. (laughs) Um, Some of us had sore feet, so we sat down next to the road and took our shoes off for a moment. Some of us got lost in a wood along the way, let's just be honest. But we're all on the same journey. We are all on that process. And I want to talk as a father to you tonight because I love young people. I love millennials. You guys are awesome and amazing. You also give me, yeah, give yourselves a hand. (laughs) At the same time, you just give me a lot of headache (laughs) because you people be crazy. But, um, (laughs) But we're on this journey together. I am 45 years old. I have been a Christian for 30 years, I realized, the other day. So I have just a little more practice on this process than you do. What I've realized as well is that when it comes from <laughs> to ashes and beauty, every decade of my life, the Lord opens up a whole new understanding to me. And I begin to realize that there's still ashes that he wants to make beautiful. 1 Peter verse 3 to 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim his excellencies who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's your identity. You are called. Just hold that for a minute. You are called out of darkness into light. Jesus stood and he went, whatever your name is, for me it was Greg, come into the light. That's what he's done for you. And he never stops calling us out of darkness into light. But there's a space in our lives where we have to embrace the process. We don't like that. (laughs) And so as I've said, the day-to-day reality of our lives is that we are in the process of becoming beautiful, of becoming joyful, of becoming strong. And we have to hold the ambiguity of that. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just say, welcome to the process. <laughs> and so again, to the millennials, beauty and ashes coexist side by side as the, as the Lord is working on us. And I really felt like I needed to say this. For some of you, you feel like there's so much ashes, There are so many ashes. You know, all that means is there's going to be so much more beauty. The more ashes, the more beauty. Let's give the Lord a hand because he is amazing. And so there are a lot of us us sitting here tonight who feel like God isn't healing our hearts or answering our prayers. That he's not actually working on our behalf. And I've realized that in my life as a young Christian, I felt like that. And now I realize it was just because I didn't understand the process that God had me in. I didn't understand the purpose He had me in. I just wanted to be healed. (laughs) Actually, all I wanted to be was somebody completely different than me. That's what healing looked like to me. But that's not healing. That's just wishful thinking. That's self-rejection. God made you. Let that sink in for a second. He made you. He wasn't bored on an afternoon and messing around with clay. He intentionally, intentionally, intentionally thought you up. Now the people next to you are thinking, oh my word, what was he thinking? No. <laughs> That's what we think to ourselves. You, nobody in this room is here by accident. I want to say this. I don't care how you arrived on this planet. God intended you. Some of you believe a lie about how you got here. Some of you feel like there's shame attached to how you got there. And God is telling you tonight, I want you, so I made you. And I wanted you here now, so I put you here now. But we are unaware of the process that God is working in us. Proverbs 4 verse 18 says this, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. That's your path. Guess what? You are the righteous. Why? Because you actually put up your hand and said, God, I care. I care about righteousness. You haven't got everything sorted out in your life yet, but you are the righteous. And the promise is that your path is like the sun that gets brighter and brighter until the full day. Imagine how weird it would be if tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock the sun just popped into the sky, full brightness, it'd be a little scary, wouldn't it? And just stayed like that for 12 hours and then vanished. That would be weird. <laughs> I remember when my mom and I were traveling in Israel and we were in Jerusalem. It was November, uh, which is winter, going into winter. And the sun kind of did that a little bit. I remember, like, you know here, like, we have long dusks. Even in winter, the, you know, you get that late afternoon feeling at around 3 and... Jerusalem was just weird. It, it, like, I remember the sun set officially at 10 to 5 when we were there, um, which is early. But what happened was is at quarter to 5, the sun was over there and like kind of bright in the afternoon. And I remember we were buying nuts, roasted nuts at a vendor, and literally at 10 to 5, the sun just vanished into the sea. <laughs> and everybody, people were like putting lights on, even the people who live there, it was like, and, you, and I'm not used to that at all. It really was weird. And the point I'm trying to make is that we live in a world that is endlessly full of process. It's dark and then dusk starts coming in and then the sun rises and then it's morning and then it's full day. And and we get that and we embrace that. But when it comes to our lives, when it comes to purpose and destiny and the healing of our souls, we have no idea how to hold it. It either is or it isn't. (laughs) And we need to start embracing the process. Great, great. Now, the, the biblical name for process is seasons. <laughs> I was reading some silly little article somebody wrote about, you know, Christian jargon. You know, I hold, I hold Lucy's leg up in prayer. I mean, imagine if we did do that. It would just be weird. But somebody then said, you know, but seasons, the way Christians talk about seasons. But the reality is that the Bible continually uses that word and in a very specific way because it's something we need to embrace. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And if you go and read that chapter, you will see that it literally lists every conceivable human condition and gives it a season. Okay, If you don't want to read it, you can go listen to a funny little group from the 60s called The Birds, (laughs) who wrote a song called Turn, 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 and they literally just sing through that entire chapter, Um, just for free. You can connect with your grandparents around that. But it says there, for everything there is a season, absolutely everything. The Hebrew word there literally means an appointed occasion. An appointed occasion. Think about your diary. You've got things in there. This is an appointed occasion. It's coming up. It's coming up. It's happening. It's done. In English, and I've taken a little bit of poetic license, but the word means this, the period of the year characterized by particular conditions. Particular conditions that don't exist in other times. A period of the year when something is at its best or is available. Now, if you swap here for your life, then a season is a period of your life characterized by particular conditions. What conditions are you in right now? Are they good? Are they bad? Are you just wishing yourself out of that season? Are you just hoping it's going to go away? Think about the conditions you're in. What is being opened up to you in the season? You see, even difficult seasons come for a reason, to challenge to show us what we're capable of, to reveal something of God. And this is the problem with the season. We're in winter now. (laughs) Some of you hate winter, some of you love winter. I kind of like winter because I get to drink a lot more hot chocolate and make soup and lie on the couch with a heater close to me. I feel like I can warm up a lot easier than I can cool down often. (laughs) So for me, winter is great. But there definitely comes that point in winter where you're just over it now. especially the late sunrises and the early sunsets. It just gets too much. But the reality of winter is I can pray for spring as much as I want. I can hope that in the middle of July I'm going to wake up and it's going to be spring as much as I want. It will be spring when it's spring. Look, I don't really believe Joebig has spring. I think it's just a big fight between winter and summer till one of them wins. But the point is, is that I cannot make winter stop just because I'm unhappy with winter. Now, Pastor Steve, we just an amazing job last week of talking through the life of Moses and just showing us that incredible moment where Moses made a decision to turn and look at that burning bush. And, and we know a lot about Moses. He feels really familiar to us. But are we aware of the seasons and processes of his life and how God used him? So for example, do you know, and I went and double-checked this, and I'm going to read a scripture that proves it, Moses was 80 years old, when he chose to turn around and look at that bush. Think about that. 80 years old. Let's talk about a season. And you know a little bit of the story of Moses, that he was born into the slavery of the Hebrews, just around the time he was born, because the Hebrews were increasing so much in number because God was blessing them. The Egyptians were terrified that they were going to have a rebellion on their hands just, and they wouldn't be able to contain it because of the number of Hebrews. And we see that first culling of baby boys where a decree is sent out. Every child under two, I think it was, must be killed. Every Hebrew boy. And Moses' mother, who, let's face it, is an amazing woman, comes up with a scheme, and she's calculated this. She knows what she's doing. When she puts that little baby into that basket on that river, she knows there's a barren princess just down the way. And so Moses gets adopted into the royal family of Egypt. And in Acts 7, verse 22, we pick up a bit of his story appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire. In a bush, And so Moses grows up as a prince of Egypt, fully given to the privilege and the rights of that position. And in a moment when he sees an Egyptian misusing a Hebrew slave, something rises up in him. His Hebrewness comes home. And I think, the Bible doesn't give us the psychology, but I don't think it's a huge leap to imagine that in that moment, Moses thought, maybe this is why I'm here maybe this is how I'm going to help my people. And he lashes out and he kills that Egyptian and he buries him and he thinks it's done and finished. But then as it says he comes to his own people. He sees two Hebrews fighting and abusing each other and he tries to step in. They are not accepting him as their savior yet, ironically, because that's exactly what his purpose is. He doesn't see it and they don't see it. And for fear of retaliation, because now he realizes he's a Hebrew In the Egyptian royal palace, how much right does he really have? And for shame and guilt and fear, he runs away to Midian. And you see, this is the issue of the burning bush, is that for 40 years, Moses has now been nothing but a shepherd. From prince to shepherd. For 40 years... He's done menial tasks. I think Siv kept going on about smelling like sheep dung the whole time last week. Get last week's sermon if you haven't got it. I honestly believe that he thought he was done. This was his life and it was finished and at an end. We felt like that. Come on. You're in a bad season and you feel like God has forsaken you and it's over and it's done and we are finished now because we cannot make sense of what is going on. But the God of process is processing us. I was really touched by the story last time because I've said it so many times and I've heard other people speak it, but Moses actually had this experience where God himself literally manifested to him and said, you are going to set my people free. We've all wished for that divine facts to arrive, telling us the next step, telling us what to do, haven't we? This is actually happening to Moses. And I love that Moses is human. (laughs) Imagine if that was you. You're all so excited. You're all like, we'll take that. No, you won't. This is exactly what you will do. Exodus 4 verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, "Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. See, we would do exactly what Moses did. We would go, oh, no, that's no. No, that's no. Sorry, God. No. Is, is there something in Mauritius? That seems really tough, God. Maybe, um, yeah, could I take that? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Because this is who we are. Now sadly, Moses kind of fights with God in this and ends up that Aaron speaks to the king. And then later on that causes a whole lot of political trouble for Israel when they're in the desert. You can go read that story. But that was not God's plan. Moses was supposed to speak. It says in Hebrews um, that he was mighty in his words and deeds. What happened in that moment? I'll tell you what happened. Moses didn't believe in himself. He believed he was a failure. He believed he had no value and no purpose and no meaning. I believe that because of the pain and the abuse of his life, he also found it difficult to trust God. Before this, there's like a whole lot of verses of like miracle training. <laughs> What's that in your hand? The staff stop. Okay. Now let's turn it into a snake. Now pick it up. Great. Now put your hand in. It's leprous. Now it's not. It's leprous. Now it's not. <laughs> What is God doing? I believe that God is trying to speak confidence into Moses. He's really saying, I'm with you. And he's literally instructing him step for step. And then at the end of that, Moses is still like, no, but I can't. And that's coming because of his pain and the lies he believes about himself. But you see, he has the irony. God believed in Moses only because God knew he had already prepared him. See, I believe that every season has a task that must be completed, that it has a skill that should be learned, that it has a lesson we should remember, and that it has a testimony we should share. And, and let's look at, at Moses' seasons. His first season was prince of Egypt. Remember it says in Acts 7.22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. What does that mean? He was trained to be king. He was at the best leadership academy possible. He became skilled in diplomacy and statementship. He became acquainted with opulence and beauty. And now I'm just um, uh, plagiarizing shamelessly from Paul Manwaring's sermon, which I think is called um, God Uses Everything and Nothing is Wasted. You can go look it up. But one of Moses' tasks in the desert was to build the tabernacle. How would slaves ever have known what a palace looked like? Not one of them had a clue. They lived in little mud huts in in Goshen. But Moses knew what the inside of a palace looked like. So when God started talking about gold and silver and excellent handcraft, Moses knew exactly what God was looking for. Because he'd been around it for 40 years of his life. Moses had been trained how to run a nation because that was his job, was to bring forth a nation from slaves. And you know what else happened in that 40 years in Egypt? He actually developed a heart for his own people. We don't know that whole story, but that that moment tells us something was burning in him about how his people were being treated. Can you see that God knew what he was doing? Moses was clueless. He was just eating good food and riding big horses. So then Moses' second season, he's a desert shepherd. He became skilled at gathering and leading throngs of dumb beasts, which he would do for the next 40 years of his life. Except they weren't that dumb. They all had something to say all the time. Just like you and me, let's not even pretend we wouldn't be whinging and whining. I think that Moses must have become trained in desert survival and tactics because he was walking sheep around the desert. I've been to, I think I was in some of that desert. It's not a hospitable place. (laughs) Finding grass is hard. I think that he learned the lay of the land, where to go. Not that kind of grass, people. Repent now. (laughs) And again, ripping off from poor man worrying. Moses knew how to butcher animals. What was his other task? To bring forth an organized religion that was based on animal sacrifice as a prophetic picture of the Lamb of God who would be slain once and all for the whole world. So when he raised up the priesthood, he could train them in how to slaughter animals. Go and read some of those sacrifices. It's really gory in the true sense of the world, like blood everywhere. But everything is prophetic for what was going to happen to Jesus and where we would ultimately be because of Jesus. Nobody else in those slaves would would be able to do that. They were given lentils, and it actually tells us what they ate. They were just given that. They didn't have to go after food themselves. That's the whole issue with the, the, I want to say locusts, but that isn't right, quails (laughs) and the manna. And I also believe that in the 40 years of being a shepherd, whatever arrogance and privilege Moses believed he had a right to was beaten out of him. (laughs) And I love that in um, Numbers 12 verse 3, book of Numbers was written by Moses. It says, Moses was the humblest of all human beings who have ever lived in the whole world. <laughs> Only a man who has totally had everything knocked out of him can write that and not be ironic. He, was, he became humble. And do, Are you getting it? That Moses' seasons gave him everything he needed to become the liberator of Israel and the lawgiver of Israel. He didn't have a clue. I'm sure in Midian he felt forsaken and he felt like God hated him. But God knew what he was about and he knew what he had put in Moses and God trusted himself that he could draw it out of him. And you know, again, just to come back to the thing, all Moses could see in that moment of the burning bush was how terrifying Pharaoh was and how huge this thing God was asking to. He didn't actually know because it hadn't been tested yet what he had inside of him. And so to the millennials, (laughs) I want to tell you this. Make a decision, please. (laughs) You're not making a decision for the next 90 years of your life. You're just making it for the next season. That's all that is required of you is the next season. None of us, not Pastor Roger, not me, none of us know what's going to happen in 10 years' time. We don't know what's coming, good or bad. We don't know what amazing things might open up. But we all have to make a decision for the next season. You have no idea how God is preparing you and training you right now for where you will stand. I can talk about three decades of being a Christian. And where I am today, I can see in each decade now how God prepared me. You have to practice faith. I was thinking about this. Couldn't God have just sat down and counseled Moses for three weeks and just spoken through all the abuse and hurt? God really could have done that. But that whole thing with the staff and the miracles was because God needed Moses to have faith. God is moved by faith. And also because God needed Moses to know it was not him that qualified him. It was God who qualified him. Moses didn't need to feel like now he could take it on. All he needed to know that his God was able. And so you have to practice faith. And faith is about trusting. Faith is about vulnerability. I believe in my life, faith has been the most vulnerable place I've ever found myself in. Because I have to acknowledge I have no control and I cannot fix anything. There is only one God out there who is mysterious and amazing and good. And I don't know how he's going to do it. And that's faith. And then you need to get busy with the task, the skill, the lesson, and the testimony of this season. If you do that, God will open up the next one in exactly the right time. And one of those seasons is letting yourself be healed. We think about Moses. He ran away out of fear. He was rejected by his own people. He felt like a failure. There was shame in his heart. There was sin in his life. He had murdered a man. And I believe that for 40 years, he just lived in that space. And that's why we hear nothing from him. But there's a space where we have to go after our healing, where we have to stand up and own our lives. Faith moves God. If if need moved God, now hear me, God is compassionate and God is caring and he will help us with everything. But he wants us to stand up and go, you are my healer. You are my deliverer. You have what I need. And so I want to encourage all of you, if you're going to step into the fullness of your purpose, you've got to go after healing. Because fear will keep you from stepping out. Shame will keep you from stepping out. And the only way you get healed is to go after it and to do the work that is required. And you know what? If you look around this room, we have to help each other. This is one of those things where God doesn't just do it. Because we have to learn how to be vulnerable with each other so we can be vulnerable with him. So that we know it's not just about us. And so I'm saying to you, I am standing here today because of counseling. (laughs) Because I was messed up, y'all. Still am a little bit. As we know, ashes and beauty coexist. Um, and so just talking to somebody else, getting some wisdom, getting some insight, having people pray with me, having people help me hold my heart and teach me skills to have better relationships and tools to just do better with my own soul have changed my life. And there's nothing shameful about counseling. There is nothing Shameful by putting up your hand and saying, I don't think things are working and I need some help. I'll tell you what is shameful is to stay in your brokenness and use it as an excuse to damage other people. That is shameful. (laughs) And none of you, none of you, none of you need to be in that space. We are here. Ask for help. And we got a lot of questions about recognizing your staff. And very quickly, it's just a slide of some questions because this is the issue with your purpose God made you with purpose. Your uniqueness is your purpose. Think about how unique you are. There is purpose behind that. We are all called to conform to Christ. That is what Silv was talking about last week. He is the reason. But he has the irony of that. As Pastor Roger and I conform to Christ, he becomes more Roger and I become more Greg. This is the irony of it. We're both at the cross. We're both submitting to Lordship, but he just becomes more who he is and I become more who I am. Part of the reason why we haven't stepped into purpose is because we think it's gonna come to us. It's already in you. And he has the big rub. I, for many years, despised my purpose because I despised myself. I remember (laughs) back in the Maranatha days—so few of you know what I'm talking um, about—with our disciples doing like motivational gift tests at Bible school, and I always scored off the charts in exhortation, and I was horrified. Like all I am is an encourager. (laughs) (laughs) I want want to be amazing. And then one, I remember making a decision. And I just hear God laughing even now as I'm talking because daily I would just pray, okay, God, if I can just be an encourager, please just make me an encourager. It's the, just, I'll be so happy if you can just make me an encourager. I didn't realize I was praying my purpose into me. I was so despising it. Other people were feeling encouraged around me. I wasn't because I didn't connect with my purpose. And the Lord came and challenged me. He said, Greg, I made you that way. That is as glamorous as it's ever gonna be Get over yourself. And I'm saying that to you as well. You are as glamorous as it's going to be. Get over yourself. Be yourself. And so some questions you can reflect on, and I'm giving this back to you because you and God need to go and find your purpose. Now, let me rephrase it. You and God need to recognize your purpose and hold your purpose and make peace with your purpose and start cherishing your purpose. So here's some questions. Ask God, what were you thinking about when you formed me? What did you put inside of me to reflect you? Any true purpose is a reflection of the character and nature of God. Some of you are joy bringers. Some of you are healers. Some of you create peaceful places. That's all stuff God does. Who am I meant to help? Who are the people I am meant to help? Because purpose is only going to manifest in the context of the next person you meet. That's the only place you're going to figure out your purpose. And we don't like that because other people are complicated and messy and sometimes we just don't like them. But who am I meant to help? What is the most consistent compliment you receive? If you haven't received a compliment recently, ask some people, what do you think is great about me? (laughs) Seriously, that's healthy, Marsha. What is the one issue you are most concerned about? And to put it another way, what issues most commonly come your way? Justice, education, kids, women. Truth. What is the issue that comes your way? What is the thing you see that others around you hardly ever seem to notice? Especially where you feel really irritated or frustrated by something. What is that thing that you feel like nobody else sees? Guess what? That's part of your purpose. You're supposed to get involved there. What is the one thing you always feel confident to speak to or about? Like when that topic or that issue comes, you can just go for it. Know your top three strengths and then practice them and get better at them. We all know our weaknesses. (laughs) And then I did the last one I put there was just recognize and practice natural and spiritual gifts and abilities. And what I wanted to say there was get serving. If you want to know your purpose, pick a spot and serve until you realize I am not being good here. Then find something else until you find where you are amazing. So get serving. So guys, the end of this whole story is learn how to embrace your process. And trust that God knows what he is doing. Amen.